0: I am Rabbi Stephen Carr-Rubin. I'm the Rabbi Emeritus at at Israel. And this is part one of a three-part series talking about my brilliant new book, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan, Wisdom on the Weekly Torah Portion. So I thought I would this evening begin with uh, telling you about how this came to be a little bit and talking a little bit about Mordecai Kaplan since allegedly that's what this book is about it's not really about Mordecai Kaplan if you've seen the book it's actually about the Torah it's a Torah commentary book um, and it's a Torah commentary book that's, it's the first of a series that's, that the Jewish Publication Society is publishing the series is A Year With dot 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 and bless you and the first one is Mordecai Kaplan and then there are there's already a second one out which is A Year with the Sages um, I know it should I won't take it personally but the the rabbi who wrote A Year with the Sages who was the second book in the series already uh, uh just died so uh, he knew this was his last book and they're coming out with a year with Abraham Heschel and a year with Martin Buber and then I don't know who else I know those and uh, about three years ago I had a conversation with uh, the rabbi who was the editor at Jewish Publication Society (coughs) about possibly being the person to write a year with Mordecai Kaplan because I figured might as well be me. Um, and I was semi-retired and so I had more time and uh, given that I've been here at KI and talking about Mordecai Kaplan for the last 30 years, I figured I was as good as anyone else to write the book. Um, th- the thing that was interesting about this particular book and this series was that they proposed the series, but they had no idea really what they wanted. They just liked the idea of having a series called A Year with Famous Jewish Thinkers. So, uh, when I had the conversation with uh, Rabbi Schwartz, who is the senior editor at Jewish Publication Society, <coughs> about possibly doing this, he said, That sounds great. I, I know you, who you are, and I've read some of the things you've written. And I like them enough to give you a shot at this. So why don't you uh, submit a few chapters? (coughs) Excuse my coughing. Um, And by chapters, at the time, we thought it would be... The the series would be the kind of book-like... Kind of like a lot of the 12-step books that are out there that are just meditations. (coughs) And a year would be... With Kaplan would be maybe 365 Kaplan quotes one for each day and there would be a quote and then kind of a meditation or thought piece that I would write about what that quote meant to me or how that, you know, what I thought about that quote or how we might translate that quote to a modern audience since Kaplan's been dead for a while. Um, Although he lived a long life, he lived to be 102 um, and was born in 1881 uh, and when I had him as a teacher, uh, he was 90, uh, and, which gave me the credibility to write the book. Oh, he you were his student, so you must know something about Kaplan. Um, in any event, so I took a shot at what appeared to be what the book was going to be about, and I picked some quotes, and I wrote some meditations about them, and I sent them in, and they thought, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't do this kind of a book. And we went back and forth for months trying to figure out what the book ought to be, what this series ought to be. And together we evolved this the format that this book and then all the rest of the books had to follow, which is that it became a Torah commentary. And all the other books are going to be also the same kind of Torah commentary, that will be a kind of commentary through the eyes of whoever writes the book, through the eyes of whoever's the alleged scholar, like in this case Mordecai Kaplan. So, if you read this Torah, these Torah commentaries, um, like the one I passed out to you, you will discover very quickly Mordecai Kaplan didn't write this Torah commentary. Stephen Rubin wrote this Torah commentary. Mordecai Kaplan never particularly associated the quotes that I have of Kaplan with these commentaries, with these commentaries. Stephen Rubin decided, oh, this would be a good Mordecai Kaplan quote for this commentary. And that's kind of the way it went. So the the and the the ultimate challenge of the book was to do three things. Go Torah portion by Torah portion. Uh, that's 54 Torah portions, and then one co- commentary for each of the holidays, <coughs> of which there are, I think, 11 holidays throughout the year, also. And each of the commentaries would have three sections. Section one would be what's called drosh, which is a uh, pshat, the sort of simple meaning of the text of whatever I happen to choose from that Torah portion. There's You know, you know how the Torah goes. The Torah's five books of Moses. It's got all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <clears throat> and then it's divided up into 54 Torah portions. And of course, if you ever come to a Torah study, you know, we, each week has its own, each Shabbat has its own portion. And we read them in order every year So we start it all over again, over and over again. So each portion has got several chapters in it and what have you. In this case, the author of this book this brilliant new book, uh, Stephen Car Rubin picked one sentence from the Torah portion that would be the representative of that Torah portion. For whatever reason, he picked it. Then he would have a paragraph that sort of the shot that sort of had a few explanations of something in that particular portion. Then there would be Mordecai Kaplan wisdom. And in which I would select some uh, a particular passage as the Kaplan passage, and then usually have at least one other Kaplan reference in that section. And the third challenge, uh, uh, four challenges. The third challenge is that the last in each commentary would be a personal reflection based upon my forty years as a rabbi, and. All of you who can see yourselves in the book um, from various incidents and things and experiences uh, just being a congregational rabbi and life in general, my family and things like that, that I thought would be another way of reflecting on the Torah portion. And it's sort of like I always picture my junior high class. Uh, you know, where you'd have maps of Europe and then there'd be an overlay that would say this is what it looked like in, you know, the Middle Ages and then another overlay and this is what it looked like before World War I and then this is what it looks like now. You know, that kind of thing. So that's kind of what this is. It's a passage from the Torah and an overlay of Kaplan and an overlay of me, uh, although it's all really an overlay of me under the guise of Kaplan um, in part. And somewhere in there, the other challenge of the Jewish Publication Society was to make sure I also included some references to traditional rabbinic sources. Talmud, Midrash, um, Mishnah, those kinds of uh, traditional rabbinic commentaries in each of the Torah portion. So, in order to write this book, which was like uh, a jigsaw puzzle, (coughs) I collected several hundred Mordecai Kaplan quotes I collected several hundred quotes from Talmud, Midrash and other rabbinic sources and I collected a whole bunch of Stephen Carr Rubin stories from my own life and my own work and my own rabbinate um, and had them and then after I would pick the part of the Torah portion that I decided I wanted to talk about I would have to find pieces from those that would all somehow, in my mind anyway, maybe not in the readers, but in my mind, make sense relevant to that portion and try to illuminate that portion in a way that seemed accessible and and fresh and personal. And also the underlying uh, idea is to introduce the wisdom and wit, because he was witty, of Mordecai Kaplan to a new audience. To people that don't necessarily read Kaplan. Some of you in the room have read Kaplan. Uh, Kaplan, you know, was born in Lithuania, as I said, 1881, came here at the age of eight to New York because his father, who was an Orthodox rabbi, a well-known Orthodox rabbi, was invited by the head Orthodox rabbi of New York at the time to be the head of the Beit Deen, the rabbinical court in New York. So that's why they came. Uh, Kaplan was... A precocious, obviously, brilliant man, and as a child he was instantly, I think he was in college at the age of 12, things like that. Um, You know, he was a bright guy. And so, and he had a, fortunately, he was fortunate that his father, uh, and he grew up very orthodox, but his father was enlightened enough that he made sure that Kaplan had both a traditional Jewish and a secular education at the same time, so that he could excel. Um, You know, uh, a half year before his bar mitzvah, he was enrolled in the Jewish Theological Seminary already. Um, Just in 1895, he entered City College of New York, received a B.A. in 1900, went on to Columbia, studied philosophy, education, sociology, you know, and uh, so, at the time, he was influenced by people like John Dewey and William James, and those were the intellectual giants uh, at the time <coughs> and Therefore, Kaplan evolved into <coughs> excuse me into uh, the non supernaturalist that he was that typifies reconstructionist thought, um, the william James kind of influence and uh, emil durkheim influence and John Dewey influence, where uh, he he was a rationalist, and he spent his life in many ways trying to combine the the traditions the richness of Jewish sancto and he called the traditions and rituals and customs and holidays of thousands of years of Jewish tradition with modernity and the rationalism of that was So popular in those days, um, and trying to put them together. And that's essentially what Reconstructionist thought became, and his philosophy became. um, And how he would constantly, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a sociologist. He wasn't just an educator, even though he became the head of the teachers' college at Jewish Theological Seminary. He was a rabbi. And his passion was Judaism and the Jewish people. And his passion was how to inspire Jewish people and Judaism of the 20th century to be meaningful, relevant, and inspiring and inspire people to action. Um, So before we do what I passed out, um, because this is how I teach, which is whatever I think of next. um, I'm going to share a couple of my favorite Kaplan quotes just to give you an idea. Uh, I did a podcast uh, last week. So, yeah, last week I did a podcast with uh, with Deborah Waxman, who's the president of the Reconstructionist Medical College, It's part of their whatever podcast series, um, which was fun to do. Uh, and basically what we did was we talked about Kaplan quotes and th- those things that inspired both of us and moved us. Uh, one of them I have actually on the wall outside around the corner when you leave you can go look it's on this wall out in the lobby put a Kaplan quote out there about the power of community and the importance of community um, but, but if I were asked which I'm now asking myself because you're not asking me but if you were to ask me what's my favorite Kaplan quote what to me is sort of the essence of Mordecai Kaplan it's this one uh, by the way I think I ended up with 112 Kaplan quotes in the book that's, that's the number we ended up with Uh, I haven't counted the the Talmud and Midrash number, but I know Kaplan's got 112. This is my favorite Kaplan quote. Um, Kaplan wrote, the foremost problem in Jewish religion is how to get Jews to take the Bible seriously without taking it literally. Mm -hmm. To me, that's like... That says it all. That's not only Kaplan, but that's liberal Judaism. That's our struggle in the modern world, of how to be, quote, religious and modern at the same time. It's how to get Jews to take the Torah, he said the Bible in his day. How to get Jews to take the Bible seriously without having to take it literally. I'm a rabbi, and I spend my life, half spent my life, last 40 years anyway, of my life, um, you know, in the community, and I can for sure not count the number of times people have come up to me and said, you know, I'm not religious, rabbi, dot, 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 and by not religious, what they mean is I don't take this stuff literally. I don't believe all that stuff that's written in these ancient texts of whether it's Jewish texts or, or the New Testament or anybody else's testaments, you know, ancient texts. Um, seems like mythology to me, so therefore I'm not religious because I don't buy into all of that. And, of course, Kaplan was one who constantly reminded us, um, you know, God didn't reveal the Torah. The Torah reveals God. That is the Torah, for Kaplan, and the Jewish life itself, and the values of that the Torah represents, is how we find holiness and divinity in the world. You know, um, any of you who've been around here a long time know that often I say these are God's hands, these are God's eyes, this is God's ears, these are God's God's mouth. This is how God works in the world. That, you know that God, for, for me, isn't some supernatural being that, uh, although I pray every day, as a matter of fact, um, I don't expect some supernatural being to somehow reach down and do anything, heal anybody, make anybody sick, whatever a supernatural being might be able to do. Um, I- instead, this is how I see how God works in the world, by us showing up. And doing godly things—that's how God gets manifest. And that was very Kaplanian. So this particular quote is really what it means: the, the the struggle, in many ways, the challenge in many ways, of being a modern, in this case, Jew, but I would say any religion, which is, how do you experience the sacred texts of your tradition in a way that is meaningful? And relevant to your life, contemporary, even though it's written three thousand years ago, or a thousand years ago, or five hundred years ago, uh, and you know, and, and we have the Torah that's our foundation, our Torah scroll. That's what this book's about. After all, week after week after week, the ideas of our tradition. That, of course, if you try to take it literally, somebody wrote it all. I mean, you know, if I had a Torah scroll, but I don't. Somebody wrote the Torah. It didn't drop from heaven. Somebody wrote it. You know, when I do, I did uh, two weddings in the last two weeks. Uh, And at both weddings, people were talking about, uh, oh, and I did a combination baby naming baptism a couple weeks ago (laughs) with a minister friend of mine um, in someone's home. You know, obviously, interfaith marriage. um, Wanted to honor both traditions. I did a Hebrew baby naming Pastor Ken did uh, a sort of symbolic baptism. I'm like, what is that about? Who does I mean I do it, but who does who who does that? What? Yeah, yeah. It's it is in each of those cases and with the weddings and the rituals of the two weddings I did, both of which were interfaith weddings, I think. I have to think about it. Um, I'm having conversations with the people involved and saying things like don't forget Somebody made all this up. Somebody invented all these rituals. Where did it come from? That we have a glass, we put wine in it, and we go, and it means whatever, whatever it means. Or what does it symbolize? Or it symbolizes joy, or it symbolizes sweetness, or it symbolizes... you know, We are meaning makers, human beings. That's what we do. We take things that are things, and, we, and we're magicians. We take out our magic wand... And we go, abracadabra, this now means whatever we say it means. That's what we do, right? We say it means something. And, and if enough of us buy into it, we collectively say it means the same thing. And we celebrate it, and we repeat it, and we do it over and over again. And, of course, any ritual, since I did weddings, I'm thinking about them, any ritual like stomping on a glass or something like that, which we immediately associate with Jewish weddings and if I asked everybody what does it mean I'd probably get at least three or four anyway oh it means this or this is what they said at my wedding or this is what I heard last week and you know and every rabbi cantor or anybody else who officiates makes up their own that they like and say this is what it means and when I do weddings I always say (laughs) often in life never mind I won't even tell you but um, I say something because I happen to like a particular explanation of what it means. You won't find it anywhere else. I made it up. But people like it. You know, and I don't like uh, one of the traditional ones has to do with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We should always remember our sadness in the midst of our joy. Not my favorite idea, so I don't bring those into weddings. I could. or people. Talk. There's all kinds of things. As soon as we buy into a ritual... As meaningful it takes on its own life, and what Kaplan introduced to the Jewish world, the whole definition of Judaism is the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, which shifted everybody 's thinking you know when he wrote Judaism as a civilization one thousand nine hundred and thirty four he was saying that before that, but that was sort of the he wrote twelve books and a bunch of other things, um, and he was a if anybody sort of study Kaplan one of the things you discover is he was a fanatical um, diary writer. Thousands of pages of diary over his whole life exist right now at the uh, College for Reconstructing Judaism. I think most of them are there some of them are somewhere else. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages because he wrote every day for his whole life, basically, diaries. And there's some books starting to come out about his diaries. But Kaplan introduced this notion that what's Judaism? It's not a race, it's not a religion, in the narrow sense of a system of belief, because, of course, what gives, as Kaplan so appropriately said, what gives Jews that our identity is not primarily belief, but rather belonging. Of belonging to the Jewish people. Um, and so when he articulated this idea that Judaism is the, quote, evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, you start unpacking that, starts with evolving. That's the whole point. It's not the same today as it was 3,000 years ago, clearly. It's not the same as it was in biblical times when we had priests and everybody else, and we had, you know, animal sacrifices. Uh, we don't do that anymore sometimes I have to tell people we don't do that anymore, but we don't do that anymore. Animal sacrifices. Uh, it's not the same as in the Middle Ages. It's not the same as, it's, you know, it's always changing and evolving and growing. Um, so, in little ways, like when we built this building and this sanctuary, um, you know, in 1997, when did we build this thing? Um, we have an eternal light that's solar-powered. Well, we were the first solar powered eternal light on this part of the world anyway. Thought that was a cool idea. Well, where's the whole idea of eternal light come from in the first place? You know, it's hmm? it's like the modern version of somebody interpreting the Torah, where in the Torah it says all the priests are commanded to light fires on the altar and to keep them burning all the time. You know, as as a symbol of God's presence, this fire burning all the time. Fire is cool and powerful. Well, we don't have fires burning all the time. We have an eternal light. That's that's our modern version of the same thing, right? Our fire is burning, and and we in fact designed our eternal light to look like a big flame. It's like this big, cool, oversized flame in there. Um, so Kaplan was smart enough to recognize what, if Judaism is going to survive and have and matter. Because he didn't want it just to survive. He wanted it to matter. If it's going to matter. It needs to mean something to you. you know. And not have people just do it because this is the way we've done it. Well, this is how my parents taught me, so I'm going to do it this way. If it doesn't mean anything, the whole modern American and I mean the whole reform movement started in Germany that way. Reconstructionism, conservative Judaism, everything that's not orthodox started essentially as a way of how do we make... Judaism relevant to this day whenever this day happened to be, and not just do you know by rote we 're supposed to open up the prayer book to page one and finish on page twenty, and whoever gets their first wins you know but it doesn 't matter what it says it 's just doing it in in a traditional sense, so part of this what makes modern Jews and part of the whole reason for writing this book besides the gaming, something you do for a couple of years, was to try to make meaningful and relevant tradition from the past, ideas of the past. So that's really Kaplan number one. How to take the Torah seriously without having to take it literally. How to see the the Torah as metaphor and as poetry. It's like he recognized if I want to tell you I really love you, I may say, Carol, I love you with all my heart. (laughs) And Carol would go, you love me with a muscle pumping blood. (laughs) Thanks a lot. You know, that's taking it literally. I love you with all my heart. Ew. It's kind of gross if you think about it. You know, but obviously that's not how we interpret, understand, and hear, I love you with all my heart. We hear it in a different way. We have taken, we have revalued the notion of heart into something other than the physicality of the muscle that pumps blood, which is what a heart is, for all the doctors in the room. Right? Even I know that much. So, that's what the Torah is to Kaplan. The Torah is somebody saying, I love you with all my heart, but also about values and ethics and a way of life. So, um, here's one of Kaplan's I like. This is one of his pithies. You have to think about it. He said, there are two kinds of people. Those who stop to think and those who stop to think. (laughs) I guess it would have been better if he said those who stop thinking. But that's what he meant. You know, he tries to have a turn of phrase all the time. He was uh, pithy and a little sardonic and awful and sometimes... Um, afraid of where people's minds were going. But another one that I love. Here's another pithy one. Those to whom every inherited folly is holy are mainly to blame for there being so many to whom everything holy is folly. (laughs) You have to think about that. But it's a great phrase. You know, that's how he thought. He thought... He was angry with and frustrated with the, the reducing of religion to, um, to sort of pat responses and things that really didn't have guts in them. He thought what a religion should do is not inspire people just to pray. A religion that works is one that inspires people to act. To act in the world and change the world. Otherwise, the religion is failing, and he saw Judaism, in its the failures of Judaism, as those aspects of Judaism that didn't inspire people to actually do something in the world to make the world better, which I thought was always fabulous. I'll share a couple more quotes, and then we'll we'll do a little bit of this. Another one of my favorites: It takes the sensitivity of genius to recognize the significance of the familiar takes the sensitivity of genius to recognize the significance of the familiar what do you mean by that what does that sound like to anybody you can't be present it's like you know we hear the phrase people walk sightless through miracles every day i as i said i pray every day what do i pray every day I do these three traditional prayers. i I said it often. Every morning, the wake-up prayer, when you say, I do it in Hebrew, but, you know, I say, thank you, God, I woke up. That's the first prayer of the morning that you're supposed to say every day in Jewish tradition. It's a great prayer. which says, essentially, thank you, God, I woke up and got my soul back. We have this traditional notion that when you sleep, your soul leaves you, your body, and goes back to God and gets recharged, rejuvenated, and then, <laughs> and then put, put back. I should have been a rabbi. Put back in your body when you wake up. I have a very quick soul. I keep waking up all the time. Goes, comes back, goes, comes back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like go to sleep and four hours later wake up and go. Why are you waking up for? What's wrong with you? Go back to sleep. Um, in any event, so I, there's three traditional prayers. That's why I say them every morning. I say that one, and then I say the prayer about the holes and orifices of my body, which is the traditional prayer that gives thanks for the miracle of our physicality. You know, it's the doctor's prayer. You're supposed to say it every time you go to the bathroom, actually, and other times. If you have sex, you're supposed to say it then, too. But it's like, nekavim, nekavim, chalulim, chalulim, galui v'yadu alifnei kisei You say... Literally, it's very graphic. It's, uh, you thank God for this body that's filled, has holes and orifices that if the ones that were supposed to be opened were closed or the ones that were supposed to be closed were open, it'd be impossible to exist. You thank God as that source of healing. Of, of, and when you say that prayer, which I do every morning, <clears throat> you can't help but be conscious of not only the things that don't work, but the amazingness of your body the incredible resilience of the human body that we are both at the same time incredibly fragile and incredibly resilient at the same moment which is always remarkable but our ancestors were smart enough to say after you wake up and go everything here and still most of it's still working how is it working that's amazing okay next you go from the body to the soul Then you say, Elohai neshama, shenatatabi tohorayth. Then you say, God, the soul you gave to me came pure from you. You breathed it into me, and someday you're going to take it back. That's this traditional notion. So you go from waking up the miracle of birth and rebirth every day to the consciousness about the miracle of your body. Uh, Since I'm not a doctor, I know there's all these organs in there that do something I don't even know where they are but thank God they know where they are and they know what they're supposed to be doing because they're just doing it anyway without me having to go okay back to my heart pump 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 go here go you know you don't have to do that it just happens and then you say a prayer about is it for me you say a prayer about your soul and it's a way of acknowledging I I was meeting with a family today about a funeral we're doing tomorrow I'm doing tomorrow, I guess. Um, Well, they're all doing it. And, uh, you know, part of the conversation this afternoon is about physicality versus spirituality, which Kaplan was very conscious of, you know, and when I'm involved in people's deaths and funerals and memorials and things like that, there's inevitably conversations about the, the nature of relationships are spiritual, not physical. I mean, we may like someone's body and be attracted to them physically and like to be around them and next to them and be able to touch them and all, which is good but that's not what the relationship's really about. Relationship, once you have a relationship, you have it and whether the person's in the room next door and you can't see them or whether they're living in Paris got a couple people living in Paris here in the room (coughs) kids living in Paris if they're living in Paris and they're thousands of miles away or they're not on the planet anymore the relationship doesn't diminish once you have that relationship because it's spiritual. It's not about this. It's not about this even. It's that connection you have that's there forever. That's there forever. And death doesn't take that away. It doesn't erase it. You know, things change and evolve. And part of this notion about taking the Torah seriously without taking it literally also in the grand scheme is exactly this kind of conversation. For Kaplan, how do you understand spirituality in a modern sense? And you know what? And the world is, in many ways, I guess, divided up into the physical and the spiritual. And this is the physical, but all the things that matter in life are not the physical. Every time people talk about the things that matter in their life, it's not physical, it's the spiritual things. It's their thoughts, their ideas, their values, their concepts, their dreams, their hopes, their plans, their, those things which are not physical. That's the realm of the spirit. And in every generation, you need to recreate new values for those that, that we take from the past to make a sense of connection. This takes the significance, the sensitivity of genius to recognize the significance of the familiar is his recognition that we find godliness in the world in which we live the everyday miracle, what I'm always calling the everyday miracles of life, when we're open to them. We either see them or we don't. The world is the way, the way it is. The people in the room are sitting in the room. You either look around and go, ooh, look at all these little godliness people h- hanging out in here. Or, you know, I don't like the way that person looks. I don't know. She's a little that. He's a little this. How come that? You know, we had this uh, event. Some of you were there. Yesterday? Wow. <laughs> Wow, we had this event in town yesterday about prejudice at the Methodist Church that the Ministerial Association put together, um, and we had a, a more than hundred people show up. We were all shocked. We were all shocked. We thought twenty people would show up. There were more than a hundred people there yesterday to interact with each other from all the different religious institutions and talk about. Issues of prejudice and 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 what's going on in the world and how we can overcome our divisiveness and our the prejudices that we tend to show up with, um, and um, you know that's recognizing the significance of the everyday and trying to find holiness in the everyday. All right, maybe one more. Maybe one more. Oh here. Maybe more than one more. But this is a classic Kaplan. Only when we improve life can we find life worthwhile. That's behind all of his philosophy and theology is about improving life, period. You know, I quoted this one, I think, last High Holidays, actually. What does it mean to be good? It means to make things and people better. That's Kaplan. What does it mean to be a good... It means to make, improve the world. I won't say that one. It's in this year's High holiday sermon. Um... <laughs> and and for all of those of you who didn't get to go yesterday I was going to quote this but I didn't this is one of Kaplan's to love God is to refuse to be depressed by the world <laughs> 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 <That's a joke. laughs> yeah you say that today? yes wait a minute let me see something hang on let me see let me see <clears throat> Here are all the quotes used in this book. (laughs) Hang on. One quote, I just have to find this because I know in this group you'll really appreciate it. Um, I should have thought of this beforehand. Where is it? Here we go. This one's in the book. You have to just find it somewhere. (laughs) For those of you who are into politics... Beware of people who combine massive intellectual ignorance with brilliant powers of salesmanship. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 1922. Beware of people who combine massive intellectual ignorance with brilliant powers of salesmanship. This actually was, you know, post-Hitler. This was really a comment about the Hitler world, in which he lived through, and fascism and and all of the the isms that were uh, about in the world, and all the masses of people who would follow one dictator or another, and um, unlike today, <laughs> where we don 't do that anyway um, but and the very first one that I used in the book in the very first chapter of Genesis which I didn't give you, but I'll do it anyway. The very first, you know what happens in the very first chapter of, of the, the Torah. We create the world, right? But the one that I picked was actually from chapter 2 that says God said it's not good for the human to be alone. I will make a fitting counterpart for him. And I talk about that. And the Kaplan quote that I picked to go along with that is being important to someone, being needed by someone, that is fulfillment or salvation. Because Kaplan talked about salvation, he used the term salvation a lot as in reference to God. He would people would ask him about God, which to him was not a you know an external supernatural being. He would talk about God as, you know that power that makes for salvation, which didn't really communicate much to people when you, that phrase, if I say it, it's like the power that makes for salvation. Well, then you have to ask, what does salvation mean? If God is the power that makes for salvation, but he really influenced by the psychology and the psychologists of his time, he really saw salvation as a kind of um, uh, personal fulfillment in the world, uh, a sense of wholeness as a human being um, and that he saw as a result of relationships that to be holy and to be whole as a human being in many ways requires us being in relationship with other human beings whether it's a partner that we live with or a community with which we interact that is, fulfills who we are and allows us to be our best selves. So, um, what else did I want to tell you about Kaplan? Oh, my, my personal experience with Kaplan as teacher was, as I said, um, <clears throat> Kaplan was 90 and living in Jerusalem, my first year of rabbinic school, 1971. 1971, 72 was when I started rabbinic school. I was ordained in 1976. Um, And first year of rabbinic school, I was in Jerusalem. uh, And Mordecai Kaplan was living there, and he graciously opened his home, his apartment, to students from the Hebrew Union College and the Jewish Theological Seminary, the Reform and, at the time, Reform and Conservative rabbinical seminaries, who had students living and working and studying mostly studying in Jerusalem <clears throat> so he had a class in his apartment so we would go to his apartment and it was one of those literally sitting at his feet because he was in a chair and I was still sitting on the floor literally on the floor of his living room in his apartment a handful of us would go <clears throat> you know once a week and sit at Kaplan's feet and have him yell at us mostly because that was his nature. He was this big, strong, blustery, you know, brilliant guy. So he would talk about... uh, For me, it was amazing. It was an amazing life-transforming, really, experience to be there with him because he was obviously... You know, when you're in the presence of of greatness like that, people, you know, he's one of many that are, you know extraordinary human beings in their time y- you know it you can't not know it and besides I'd studied Kaplan the uh, t- two years before my junior year of college I was in Jerusalem uh, at the Hebrew University studying an education abroad program like some of your kids are doing around the world. At the moment, I was in Jerusalem. I wanted to go to Paris, but my French sucked, so they wouldn't take me. So I went to Jerusalem, because you didn't have to speak Hebrew at the time. You could speak, the program was in English. Um, So, uh, And and one of my classes at the Hebrew University was contemporary Jewish thought, and half of the class was about Kaplan. uh, Because, frankly, Mordecai Kaplan was the single most influential Jewish thinker of the 20th century in America, probably in the world. Um, He influenced... Uh, generations of certainly rabbis in both the Reform and Conservative movement. He taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary for 50 years. That's five zero years. S- he, you know, transformed the very thinking of American Jews about themselves, Judaism, um, and the role in the world. And so I had studied him and his writings then, and then there he was. And I was sitting in his presence. And he would do things like, he would talk about, uh, kind of lecture about Jewish life and how he saw Judaism and what we needed to do to make Judaism work in the future and constant emphasis on community and on uh, putting aside, you know, our differences. Even then, you know, he has this notion in his writings about the organic Jewish community and to him, the organic Jewish community, uh, our version of it is Jewish Federation, didn't quite Do what he wanted it to do. What his vision was that we would all we would organize as a a Jewish community as a democratic group of people who would then elect leaders. We would and the community we would all not pay dues to individual synagogues. We would pay dues to the Jewish community. You know, it was kila that was a European, Middle Ages European idea. The the, kahila, the the Jewish the community, the people that had tax, and then the Jewish community would make sure you to get kosher food and things like that. So Kaplan had in the modern world this idea that that's what we should do. So in Los Angeles, we should all pay our dues to the Jewish Federation. Let's say that would be a, a representatives from all of our different communities, Jewish communities, and the community as a whole would then support any kind of prayer experience that anybody wanted any kind of arts, Jewish arts experiences, Jewish educational experiences uh, would come from a sort of a central location that we would all pitch in our money to and rather than individual synagogues competing with the same people down the street for dues and all that kind of stuff. So he had this sort of global notion of what he called the organic Jewish community. So he used to talk about that and then in the middle of a sentence he would turn to one of us And he would go, what did Rabbi Akiba say? (laughs) Just like that. And you'd like have no idea what he was talking about. And even if you did, you'd be like struck, terrified, and you wouldn't be able to answer anyway. It was terrifying. But, you know, you figure, okay, he's a genius. And he was 90 at, at the time. You can just imagine in the strength of his, you know, being 40, Or 50, let alone 90, because he was terrifying at 90. Um, What it was like, you know, the most famous—I think—the most famous Kaplan story that captures him uh, when he was teaching uh, was he would have part of his class, uh, one of his classes at the Jewish Theological Seminary, would be a this would be a Torah commentary class, and what he would do is he would assign. Uh, a passage, like, let's say, oh, since I passed it out, this week's Torah portion, which is ki tavo, so he might assign this particular passage, which would be, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen, uh, isn't it exciting, I'm actually using something I passed (laughs) out, you have seen all that Adonai did before your very eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his courtiers and to his whole country, The wondrous feats that you saw with your own eyes, those prodigious signs and marvels, yet to this day Adonai has not given you a mind to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. That's the quote. So he would assign a quote like that on Monday to his class, and he would give his own drosh, his own interpretation on Monday in his class. And then everybody was supposed to come up with their own. And on Friday, he would pick somebody, call them up in front of the class, and they would give their interpretation of this passage. And the most, literally, the most famous Mordecai Kaplan story is the time when he did that in class. And Friday comes, he calls on a student. The student gets up and almost literally word by word, gives exactly the same Torah commentary that Kaplan himself gave on Monday. Kaplan stood in the back, listened to him, said, that's terrible. <laughs> and the student rightly said, but Dr. Kaplan, that's the same commentary that you gave on Monday. And Kaplan looked at him and said, I've grown since then. <laughs> That was Kaplan. That was like, that's what this is all about. It's about how do you stay fresh? How do you stay new? How do you see the world through new eyes? So so I write this sort of little explanation piece in the beginning about that particular f- sentence from the couple sentences from the Torah, from this week's Torah portion that uh, taught in which I basically explain that what Moses is saying here is even though you literally experienced the exodus from Egypt even though you you literally experienced you were slaves and you went free what more could you possibly ask to have a direct experience of God than in biblical times then you were slaves, you're now not slaves hello you saw what God did to Pharaoh. You saw what God did to all of those soldiers who drowned in the sea when the sea closed up. You saw that, as the Midrash then reminds us, that th- what I call this is, this is the miracle generation, Right? first welfare state, that's what you said, Bob. The miracle generation, according to the Torah, during the 40 years of wandering, shoes didn't, it was a terrible shopping opportunity because shoes didn't wear out and clothes didn't wear out. And, hi Becky, shoes didn't wear out and nobody ever had to go shopping for anything. You know, and you got food every day. You know, in one of these commentaries, I talk about what I call the, the mana principle you know manna that's the famous food that they ate for 40 years wandering in the desert now the r- rabbis in their midrashic commentaries say what did what did the manna or manna taste like Tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like mm-hmm. you know it tasted different for everybody whatever you wanted for you it was a you know hot fudge sunday today you know and tomorrow it's like you know, Kale, uh, I don't know whatever turns you on, but uh, whatever. My wife won't eat kale. She says when I grew up in the Bronx, kale was a garnish. Nobody. <laughs> he put out the platter for the bar mitzvah, and kale would be that stuff they put around the outside. as the, you eat that stuff? No. Anyway, so <laughs> I live with this. The uh, so uh, the mono principle is, as the Torah says you know, every day they'd wake up and there'd be manna there to eat. Or manna, as you like. And you could eat it. But what's the catch in the Torah? How much could you gather? Yeah. You know, you, you, you could only gather enough for one day. That's what it says. Every day would be there, and then you were commanded, you, this is your food, you gather up enough to eat that day. And What would happen if you gathered more than one day's worth? It would go spoil and turn bad. It would instantly spoil, you greedy person, you. That's an amazing thing to think about. To me, the mana principle is this notion of living every day with faith, I'll survive tomorrow right? Shabbat, you got a double portion. Yeah. Friday, you get a double portion because you're not supposed to gather on Shabbat because it's work. So except for Shabbat, you get a double portion on Friday. The whole amount of principle is, okay, I'm only going to take enough for today because I have to have faith there'll be more tomorrow. That tomorrow when I wake up, I'll be able to live again another day. And then the next day, I'll be able to do it again. And it's this challenge to live every day as if that's the only day. Because with mana, that's the only day. That's all you get. You want to eat today? You get today's food. You can't store up like for the winter like the whatever those people that store it up for the winter do. and Chipmunks? No. Squirrels. Squirrels. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mixing metaphors. The um, Right. and uh, Here, Moses is saying in this particular Torah portion of this week you, you have a you live through this miraculous world every single day and yet you still have no faith and yet human beings you're so fickle you know it's like what have I done for me what have you done for me lately it's what have you done for me in the last three minutes because five minutes ago was okay but what then what Where'd you go? You know, and we have this insatiable need, human beings, to, like, constantly tell me you love me. (laughs) Constantly. I told you I loved you yesterday. You didn't believe me yesterday? You know, it's like, every day. Yes, I tell Didi I love her every day. She's insatiable, too. Every day. But, you know, because it's a privilege to be able to do that, because we're still both together and here, so... Moses is saying, no matter even though you had a direct experience of the sacred, it's still not enough for you. It's like never enough. And that's one of the great human challenges of life. When is anything enough? When is there enough money? When is there enough friends? When there is enough of anything that we want, When is what's enough? What does enough mean to us? <clears throat> um, it's one of the great Challenges and scourges of humanity is that there's never enough. You know, if there was, we wouldn't have all these billion and billion and billionaires out there with more and more people being poorer and poorer. And the greater and greater people would go, one billion's enough. You know, I can live on that. What can I do with my rest of my billions? Who can I help with that? You know, we have a rising homeless population in. in um, LA and everything else. So that's what this Torah portion is about. That's, but Kaplan, so I have Kaplan. My Kaplan quote on the next page is In religion, as in all other manifestations of human life, there are three distinct states experiencing, knowing, and understanding. Why do you think, why did I pick that quote? What does that have to do with? Moses telling them, you guys, you faithless guys, no matter what, even though you had a direct experience of things, somehow you're not there. Why why does anyone think I picked in religion, as in all other manifestations of human life, there are three distinct states, experiencing, knowing, and understanding? What do you think? Because I picked it. They're all linked. Even though you say they're distinct, they are all linked. Yeah. Experiencing, knowing, understanding. Kaplan saw that as a progression. Kaplan saw what this is, what Moses was talking about. Well, I saw Kaplan seeing this is what Moses saw. I don't know if Kaplan saw it. It would be terrifying if he actually was here looking at <laughs> what quotes I picked yeah, for each of his, his Torah portions, but he's not so I get to do it. So, um, Yeah, experiencing. So we all have experiences every day. We experience our lives. What does it mean? What do our experiences mean? What determines what our experiences mean to us? How do yeah. understand them? Uh, our We discern our attitude, our understanding. You know, we have an experience. Like, how many of you have gone to see a movie with somebody? And the movie's over, and you went, you didn't like that? (laughs) Or, I hated that, and the person's going, what? That was a cool I mean, the movie was exactly the same. You know, it's on film. It's it's fixed. It's not a different movie for you than it is for the person sitting next to you. It's literally the same movie, right? Exactly the same. But everybody that's there is seeing it through their own filter, through their own experience. They're not experiencing it the same, even though they are all experiencing. It's like... Well today I'll go back to my reference of my funeral tomorrow. I'm sitting with the family, two kids. Their mother died. Sitting with the husband and the two kids. Two kids close great family, go on vacations together. Little kids? No, no, adult kids though. Uh, 39 and 37 with kids of their own. Kids. You know, kids. <laughs> kids with kids of their own. Yeah, right. Uh, and the mother was only seventy two so it was very very sad. but in the meantime, you know they could have been growing up in different families. so tell me about your mother <laughs> okay, so tell me about your mother you know and it happens to me all the time, all the time you know they 're siblings in a family, and they 're looking at each other going, "What <laughs> what are you talking about she didn't she wasn 't he wasn 't he didn 't he did that all the time because we're all having our own experience. We're not growing up in the same family. I'm growing up in my family. You happen to be there, you know. You're growing up in my in your family. I happen to be there for part of the time, doing what you know, all of that. You know, you're talking about your kids. One of them's gone, and the other one's going. No, don't leave me alone, because all well, his experience is totally different than the other one. That's that's our life. That. So Kaplan's going, yeah. What does it mean to have a sacred experience? What does it mean to be moved and inspired? Because all of life, including religion, religious experiences are made up of both experiencing and then knowing, sometimes knowing what that experience is all about. Why did that come about? Why do we do this ritual? You know, we're about to have high holidays sitting for hours listening to singing and chanting and sermons and doing this and you know and we do the same things every year. But every year we're different, so every year it's a, it's a different experience. Our filter is different. The glasses through which we see the world, because I have glasses, are different this year than they were last year. Slightly, for some, it's profoundly things that have happened in your life in this last year. And you sit there and you go, oh, my God. But what, what, a year ago, this, that, this, that, and now, either positive or negative. You know, people whose whole lives have changed in the last year, since last Rosh Hashanah, last New Year, new jobs, live in a new place, new relationships, and other people, the opposite. You know, the death of loved ones, tragedy, trauma, all kinds of things. That's everyone. All of us have all of that, and some of us have both of those at the same time. The blessings and the curses. You know, my other theme of life. Life's filled with blessings and curses and can't always tell which is which. And sometimes one starts out as one and ends up the other and starts out as the other and ends up as one. So, you know, that's what happens. And that's what Kaplan's also saying. So the filter is that quote from, from Moses in the Torah going, you know, what's wrong with you guys? You, you couldn't have a more positive direct experience of gods, what go- godliness is, than have been slaves and gone free. You were nothing. You were no one. You were powerless. And here you are. You escape from the most powerful country on earth with the biggest, baddest, toughest, meanest army on the planet. And you walk to freedom. Whoa! You'd think you'd be going every day, you know, singing hallelujah every day. Thank you, God. I wrote a song called that once for kids. Thank you, God. And instead it's like...
1: It's hot out here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's slog- was this desert thing. What's wrong with this? <laughs> uh, we're yeah, uh, you know, human beings. Right. Uh, <laughs> right? It's like crutching. We're the ever crutching people. That's the Jewish people. Ever crutching people. But, you know, it's like uh, that's the way it is. So Kaplan... Recognize, oh, look what I wrote. For religion to matter, belief in God must first be rooted in direct experience of the sacred in our lives. One's knowledge of God cannot be an intellectual process, but needed to be an intimate, immersive experience grounded in life. And then I went on. Um, and then I... My meditation, my personal reflection, in this case, was about parenting. Which, you know... And I talk about... Uh, one of the books I wrote once... It's called "Children of Character." Um, it's about leading your children ethical choices in everyday life. And when I wrote that book, uh, the publisher, Marlene Cantor, former member, published the book, sent me on a little tour. You know, one of those little book tours, which was fun. Going on a book tour if you're not a famous author is one of the most depressing experiences of <laughs> life. <laughs> right? Because it's like it's like they. Uh, where was I? I was in. Uh, Portland I think Portland Portland or Seattle they have this fabulous bookstore I think it must have been Portland Portland. right they have this famous bookstore in Portland Pals Pals. 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 exactly I had a book signing there with me and the homeless guy who came in from out of the rain (laughs) (laughs) it's Portland it rains you know it's like and one other person who actually came because they wanted to see who I was um but that's like most of the time for most people who aren't famous who do quote book signings in places unless they really create some kind of an event. In New York I did something that where there was actually an event there were like 20 people there and I was giving a talk but in some Barnes and Noble posters and things like that. But mostly nobody shows up unless you're famous because who the hell are you? Why should I show up, you know, come to your book signing? I did some TV shows and morning shows, and those were, those were fun in any event. Why am I telling you this? Um, oh parenting so i did, I did a lot of parenting conversations also when the book came out, and workshops uh, about parenting and as I write in this particular commentary, I noticed um, every parenting workshop, I would start out by asking the parents you know what 's one value that your par- that you your parents taught you? What's something that you'd say is a is value? What was important that your parents taught you? And they would share whatever they would share. Be truthful, you know, whatever happens to be. And then I would ask, well, how did they do that? And 100% of the time, literally, 100% of the time, they would answer automatically by example. Everybody. First of all, when I would ask people, where do your values come from? 100% of the time, they would say, my parents interestingly enough um, maybe it was the crowd I was doing it with but we learn positive and negative from parents you know after all uh, we learn what not to do we make our own judgments I'm not going to do that when I become an adult or a parent and we learn what to do um, and that's this that's my version of where do your values come from they come from your everyday experience and how you then interpret that experience to be something meaningful um, that's the overlay on this particular Torah portion evidently Yeah, um, you know uh, I love that book because uh, my children character book uh, only because I knew that I could write the whole book in one sentence which would be be the kind of adult you want your children to grow up to be that's really the whole point of. The, but then no one would publish it, so I had to write a whole book, <laughs> so someone would publish something. Not that anybody bought it, but they so they got the book published. So, but that's really that's the point. The point was be the kind of adult you want your children to grow up to be. That's sort of a version of this spiritual godliness of Moses going, okay, look, w- you know, what do you need in life? What does God have to do in your life? For you to recognize holiness when you experience it, sacredness when you experience it, divinity when you experience it. And because look what happened to you. Why is it that we are constantly saying, we Jews, we're always making reference to the Exodus. It's everywhere. It's the foundational experience of Jewish life and of Jewish civilization is we were slaves and we went free. You know, it's not just... Passover, which is the big version of it, it's every single service. We sing the Michomocha, we sing whatever, you know, which was like from the crossing of the sea. We sing, we're always reminding ourselves in, at every holiday, one way or another, about we were slaves and we went free. We had a direct experience of the sacred. That's what we, That's what God is to us. And therefore, then there's the question of what's the meaning? We're always, we, the Jewish people, and certainly in the modern world, in our mitzvah-centered tikkun olam world context of today, we are always reminding, and clergy are always reminding each other, that we keep reminding ourselves that we were slaves and went free so that we will act in a way that frees those who are still slaves in the world. And the sad reality that there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been. By everybody's study of slavery in the world today. Of course, there's more people in the world today than there have ever been either, but there's more slaves. More people are enslaved in various ways around the world than ever. It's like insane, right? Um, and poverty does that, too, enslaves us. And that's why we have those kinds of prayers and meditations in our liturgy. That's not when we read the English of our liturgy we make reference to that the whole point, Kaplan's whole thrust I now said it about five times I think was exactly that that what it means to be a religious person as a Jew in the modern world needs to be that we act in a way that liberates others and brings the world closer to the kind of world in which we want to live the world we pray for, the Oseh Shalom Bim Ramav world that we pray for at the end of during every service, we say, you know, literally Oseh Shalom Bim Ramav, may the one who makes wholeness in the heavens make wholeness down here. Oseh Shalom Bim Ramav Shalom Aleinu May that power that makes unity and wholeness in the heavens make wholeness among us and all of Israel and all of creation all who dwell on earth, really we say that's our Reconstruction's version of that prayer, that's the essence for Kaplan of what the whole point of this is the whole point of being a religious person of doing the rituals that we do, of coming to high holidays that we're about to come to, I'm speaking by the way, in case anyone's interested, Mm -hmm. over at the Fox in Westwood yes, the 29th in the evening, mm-hmm. it's my time, my allotted time to speak. <laughs> is last year I actually spoke on Kol Nidre because Micah was here first for his first year, and and uh, Rabbi Amy wanted Micah to be able to be introduced to the whole congregation, mm-hmm. so had him speak on erev Rosh Hashanah at least on because that's it's one of our unity services where that's the only service we have on erev Rosh Hashanah is the one in in Westwood. But that's my normal shot to speak, (laughs) so I'll be there shooting and speaking, Um, but not with my AK forty-seven because we're taking those away. So yeah, you think? Yeah, no, we're not taking them away from anybody. Um, In any event, um, I I gave you. I'm not going to talk about it, but I gave you the Rosh Hashanah one because I know you don't all, you haven't all, run out and bought this book, Uh, but. I, I did something for all the holidays, and on the holidays, this is my uh, my Kaplan version of Rosh Hashanah for you to just have and to hold and to read. So I know it says uh, 7 to 9, but it's really 7 to 8.30 every time. It's an hour and a half and not two. Uh, I can't stand myself for two hours, let alone <laughs> visit myself on you. Um so, questions, things. Anybody want me to say anything about anything in particular? Yeah. So, uh, just without offending anyone. You want to offend me? I, it's not like the uh, Jewish world or the other movements embraced Kaplan, and I was thinking if he was looking beyond the sages and the Talmud to inform how to make Judaism work and be. Mm-hmm. Well, the Orthodox were very offended. They burned his... They put him in harem. They, you know, put him in... What do you call that? In English? Uh, what? No, they... Uh, excommunicated. Thank you. They excommunicated him. I used to speak English. They uh, <clears throat> excommunicated him from the world, from Judaism. They burned his... The first prayer books that he created, they burned... had a big, famous book burning in... Manhattan of Kaplan and they, you know, spit on his stuff and whatever. But he was literally responsible for the creation of all kinds of institutions around. His ideas are what created Jewish community centers. His ideas are what created Jewish federations. I mean, directly, not just indirectly, directly. He is responsible for the what's now the American Jewish University, that was the University of Judaism, when it was being formed, literally Kaplan was there forming it with them. It was part of, that was the whole idea, as opposed to JTS, Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, which was clearly a, the conservative movement's bastion of, of rabbinical training and everything. Here we are in California, where anything goes. So, in California, where anything goes, the idea, uh, the original idea of the UJ, the University of Judaism, was to be a university of Judaism for everybody, not a conservative movement institution. But he was working in the conservative movement. He was the liberal end of it. So it ended up ultimately becoming the conservative movement's institution on the West Coast. He also was instrumental in creating Brandeis Camp Kaplan. He was there with uh, Slomo Bardeen or whatever. Started with Bardeen and Kaplan. I mean, Kaplan was everywhere. Kaplan was amazing. I mean, when you study him, the, the impact he had. And as I said, literally, uh, everybody claims him as, you know, their intellectual, modern intellect, not everybody, but everybody in the liberal world, the liberal reform world, the liberal reconstructionist world, the liberal conservative world, claim Kaplan as their intellectual sort of ancestor, his writings. He changed the Jewish world uh, by what he did. It had a profound impact. Um, it's just, you know, we're people, we're human and we're Jewish, and, you know, two people and six opinions, so we're always arguing and with everybody. We can't agree on anything. Uh, you know, and why should we be different Than the rest of the world. We aren't different than the rest of the world. I mean, we are different in some ways, but we're also human beings who are the same as everybody else. You know, my way must be the best way. You know, I do a lot of interfaith stuff and interfaith marriages, and I've always done them for 43 (laughs) years now since I've been ordained. But frankly, two Jews marrying each other argue just as much. (laughs) Uh, We don't do that on our Passover table. We uh, we, have, you know, that's not how we do it. This is how we do it. You know, my family, we always, this is the right way. Because <clears throat> the way you were raised is the right way. You know, it's like coming to, to a new synagogue and going, Who, why are they sing that? Where's that melody come from? That's not how you do that prayer. You know, that's not how, that's not what I learned. Uh, and everybody's that way. That's natural. It's a normal human way of responding. So, you know, we, uh, we do what we do. And the challenge is to, in many ways, is to retain the past and make it meaningful in the present and evolve into something else for the future so that we're constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. (coughs) I've been doing a lot of Persian-Jewish weddings Mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. I sort of got on the Persian-Jewish wedding (laughs) circuit (laughs) somehow. Um, No, no, same faith, Jewish-Jewish. But some are Jewish-Persian, jewish jewish Jewish-non-Persian. Those are interesting relationships, you know. The non-Persian Jews are going, What? What is this? You know, if you ever go to Persian weddings, first of all, they're 10 hours long, and you eat first, then you, have, then you eat, and then you eat, and then you eat, and then you party all night. You know, the Persians and the Russians, they'll party all night, all night. So, um, and they show up three hours late, of course, too, so that's the other thing, they come really late when they show up at anything at all, show up late. So, um, no, I I ended up, uh, you know, the Persian community is very tight and very traditional still. So I ended up doing them because I'm me and I'm different. So, and I did somebody's wedding and then their cousins and whatever are calling me going, would you do my wedding? Mm -hmm. Because they, because the Persian rabbis are very traditional. So the Persian rabbis everywhere and in LA. So they'd rather have like a liberal kind of, fake rabbi like me to to do it, because I count, because I'm really a rabbi, but I'm not that kind of rabbi. Um, in any event, I, I go there, and you see the tension between parents' generation, that's the immigrant g- generation, and the generation that was born here for sure, or those who grew up here primarily, and it's classic, this is you know this is everybody's experience of that push and pull from one generation to the next, and how do you become modern and keep the past and that's you know all of thousands of years of Jewish evolution in a nutshell right there when you watch any immigrant community we have a lot of, of immigrant community here, a lot of Persian Jewish immigrants who are in l a we the largest Persian Jewish community in the world, I think. I think literally in the world, but certainly we were outside of Tehran. Um, But I think we're now the biggest in the world. Uh, Everybody came to L.A. Um, Anyway. Anything else? Yes. Just an observation. Brief. Uh, In answer to what you started with, you are Mordecai's Catherine's posterity. That's you. Me. (laughs) (laughs) terrifying. Poor Mordecai. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Well, you know, uh, thank you. I'll take it as a compliment. He was, uh, uh, having that experience with him was such an amazing privilege for me, that personal experience. And you know, for those of you who were here when I started in 1986, which is when I came here, and were at my installation, anybody who happened to be at my installation here, uh, because I was from the Reform Movement and grew up in the Reform Movement, and because this is a Reconstru- has always been a Reconstructionist congregation, <clears throat> and I wanted to um, demonstrate some kind of Reconstructionist yichas and connection, really. Um, before my installation, Shabbat, Didi and I flew to New York and went to. Uh, remember? Yeah, we went to New York, brought her brother with a camera, and we. Uh, we visited with uh, Judith Kaplan, because I would have visited with Kaplan, but he was dead by then. So I went to his daughter, was the next best thing, and Ira Eisenstein, you now his disciple, um, and son-in-law, who married Judith, the first bat mitzvah in America, and they were living in Woodstock at the time. We went there, and we interviewed them, because they were friends. They'd been here many times, and were friends with Abe Winokur. Um, <coughs> okay, I was founding rabbi, and so I uh, interviewed them about Reconstructionism and about Ki and about and, and about anything that would make me look like I knew what I was talking about Reconstructionism, <laughs> and and then we made a little video of it we showed it at my installation. That was like getting their like hex, you know, their the sword on my shoulders or something <laughs> like that. That was the notion in my mind anyway. Um, although the sound wasn't great because uh, it was like not really it's an amazing, it was an amazing experience and it was an amazing interview. Um, You have a copy of that? It's like, yeah. Uh, First of all, Judith and, uh, Judith, Judith Kaplan Eisenstein was such a character, right? She was like adorable as a human being. Um, Also tough, like her father in many ways, but um, she and Ira were like Tweedledum and Tweedledee <laughs> together. As a couple, they were... they were. He was a very smart man, and, and she was very smart. Um, musicologist and whatever. And when I, when I would ask... We, we talked to them about... Uh, I know this has nothing to do with tonight, but it was great. About how they met, you know, and how did you guys end up together? And <clears throat> they were teaching religious school together. And so I said, so what I decided we should do I was interested is I should get her to write with me a play, write a musical for the kids in the religious school together, and then I would be able to spend time with her. So, how many years ago was this, when I was talking to them? A long time ago, right? They weren't young then. And they're sitting there, while they're telling me this, singing... The songs that they wrote together for this musical, like forty years earlier, right? And she'd go, "Yeah, yeah." It was like, uh, but they're singing these words, and he would jump in with it, finish the second half of the verse, and then she would go. It was like so adorable and and fantastic, you know. And it's a reminder. Ira was a very intellectual wrote a lot of books he was the really driving force behind creating all the institutions of the Reconstructionist movement because Kaplan wasn't that kind of a guy Um, but what mattered was their relationship and the the sweetness and the cuteness and the living together and you know like everybody else human beings are human beings so it's a great interview we should watch it again sometime Anyway, thank you all for coming. Um, And uh, there's a couple more uh, opportunities for me to talk about different things. Maybe I'll be more specific on the book next time. But uh, have, have a wonderful Rosh Hashanah. For those I'm going to see, come and hear my brilliant sermon on the 29th. Thank you all.